that is the main, if you take nothing else, <laughs> I tell people, if you're not going to read the book, that's fine. Just know that there is this crucial distinction between high conflict and good conflict. Good conflict we need more of, not less. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, what is high conflict and how do you get out of it? In the muggy summer of 1775, delegates from America's 13 colonies gathered in Philadelphia. They met each day in a red brick state house, sat together in Windsor chairs, and discussed revolution. One of the loudest voices among them belonged to a pugnacious lawyer named John Adams. He was plump, bald, short, and sarcastic. The cause of the revolution was so important that he was willing to push himself to the brink of collapse. He debated, lectured, and cajoled his fellow delegates until he literally could not see straight. So he must have been taken aback by the comparatively mellow demeanor of the young delegate he met for the first time there in Philadelphia, Thomas Jefferson. Unlike Adams, Jefferson preferred to keep quiet, folding himself into his Windsor chair and hugging his long arms tightly across his chest. Adams would later recall that throughout the weeks of deliberations, he'd never heard Jefferson string together more than three sentences. Adams must have wondered why this young man traveled all the way from Virginia just to sit there in silence. Did he think he was better than his fellow delegates? Maybe. Jefferson arrived in Philadelphia weeks after the others. And in a city where lavish entertaining had gone out of fashion and troops were marching in the streets, Jefferson lived in oblivious luxury. He and his four horses took up residence in glamorous quarters. If you'd asked Adams for his first impression of Jefferson, he might have summed it up with uncharacteristic concision. Haughty, aloof, pretentious. But when the delegates broke into small groups, Adams caught a glimpse of a different Jefferson, a man who was unfailingly polite, but undoubtedly revolutionary. In those small meetings, Adams found himself engaging with someone who was, and I'm quoting here, so prompt, frank, explicit, and decisive that he soon seized upon my heart. They formed a friendship, and that friendship lasted years. Adams took Jefferson under his wing. He was the one who persuaded Jefferson to take a crack at drafting the Declaration of Independence. Even when they disagreed, they did so graciously. But all that changed in 1796, when they ran against each other for president. Adams won, but not by much. And he could hardly bear the fact that his protege had come so close to beating him. Their once civil disagreements took on an acrimonious tone. For dramatic effect, here is a scene of the two of them from the HBO miniseries, John Adams. Jefferson speaks first. That you and I differ on our assessment of the best form of government for these states united is well known to us both. Yes, but we only differed as friendship does. Respecting the purity of each other's motives. Oh, surely you and I, Thomas, can rise above the din of politics. Once told me that I would always have your friendship. You have it now. Yes, but not your support. Not your support. Well, I will not trouble you again. Dave, you, Thomas. And you, John. When Adam says, 
I will not trouble you again. He's not exaggerating. In 1800, they competed in another presidential election, and this time, Jefferson won. Here's historian Gordon S. Wood describing how Adams took the loss. He's, he's humiliated. He thought that it was a natural thing that he should be served the two terms the way Washington had, and he's just utterly humiliated. He refuses to attend Jefferson's inauguration. Notice the word Wood uses to describe how Adams felt. Humiliated. As Amanda Ripley puts it in her riveting new book, High Conflict, humiliation poses an existential threat that jeopardizes the deepest part of ourselves, our sense that we matter, that we're worth something. When that happens, good conflict, like the kind Jefferson and Adams had been engaged in for years, the kind of friction that's serious and intense, but that leads somewhere useful, that gives way to high conflict. Suddenly, it's bitter, all-consuming, unproductive. Once you find yourself embroiled in high conflict, it's almost impossible to get out. That was certainly the case for Adams and Jefferson. It was so hard for them to break free of high conflict that they stopped speaking for 12 years. Throughout that time, a mutual friend urged both of them to bury the hatchet. And finally, in 1812, Adams relented. Adams makes the first move, sends a letter saying, I'm sending a piece of Massachusetts manufacturing. That piece of manufacturing turned out to be two volumes of his son's lectures. Jefferson, being literal-minded as usual, says, oh, and he launches into his response because the books didn't come with the letter. They came later. He thinks it's going to be a piece of manufacturing, so he launches into a long dissertation on manufacturing in Virginia. And then the books arrive, and he writes a quick letter. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. But that broke the ice, and then the letters flowed uh, for the rest of their lives. In one of those letters, Adams wrote, you and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other. And that they did over the span of 158 letters. Their correspondence continued until they died on the same day. And not just any day, it was the 4th of July, exactly 50 years after the nation they'd helped found had declared its independence. It's a sweet ending, but don't lose sight of the real tragedy. For more than a decade, when the young nation was at its most vulnerable, two of its wisest statesmen were stuck in such a bitter feud that they couldn't trade ideas, forge alliances, engage in healthy debate, or further the cause of democracy. Instead of asking questions, they hardened their positions. Instead of making progress, they stagnated. That's the problem with high conflict. When you're trapped in it, you're oblivious to the collateral damage. But it doesn't have to be that way. With the right tools, you can break free. And in this episode, journalist Amanda Ripley is going to tell you how to do it. Her new book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, was chosen by our curators here at the Next Big Idea Club as one of this spring's best new works of nonfiction. And in this episode, she'll be chatting with one of those curators, Susan Kane, about what a former gang leader in Chicago, a contested election for a water board in California, and a synagogue on New York's Upper West Side can teach us about turning high conflict into good conflict. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to this Next Big Idea podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with Amanda Ripley. I have just come to be a reader and a fan of Amanda over the years, such that anytime I see her name pop up, I always think, okay, I know this is going to be something really interesting and really smart. And Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. I want to ask you before we dive into the actual substance of the book, what is it that made you decide to start writing this book in the first place? I mean, because of course, all of us right now are kind of hyper aware of living in times of hyper conflict. And so was it just looking around at kind of our, our civic life right now? Or was it also something more personal? I think it was a combination, right? I mean, on the one hand, I felt totally exhausted, like many of us do, with the level of sort of stagnant conflict. Like, it just feels like we aren't, we're not going anywhere. And I also felt, as a journalist, like I was going to commit some kind of journalistic malpractice if I just kept doing the same things, because it didn't seem like traditional journalism was working in this level of political polarization. So it was sort of a sense that I wanted to be useful, but didn't know how. And also I had grown up with a fair amount of conflict in my home. And I had sort of thought that I understood it and was comfortable in conflict, that I knew a lot about it. I'd written about, you know, all kinds of conflict for 20 years. And all of these things kind of conspired together to make me feel like, you know, maybe there's something I don't know about this. <laughs> maybe there's something fundamental that I am missing. And so I started hanging out with people who are in intractable conflict, who study intractable conflict, like it's a, you know, weather pattern, um, who study how to get out of really difficult conflict. And that was like this missing piece of the puzzle right? It was like the thing that made everything make sense again, even as it was still, you know, really frustrating and disturbing and, <laughs> and stagnant. But it made everything make sense looking at the, the situation through the lens of conflict. And you've said that when you first started, you were mostly looking at the question of how to get out of conflict. But then you started to realize that it was really a question of distinguishing between what you call good conflict versus kind that we're mired in now of high conflict. Can you flesh that out a little bit? What, what the difference is between those two states? Yeah, so high conflict is more rare, although not that rare right now. But most conflict is not high conflict, right? Most conflict is the kind of conflict where questions get asked, there's potential for learning, for flashes of curiosity and understanding. And you can actually see that in the data as well as feel it, right, in yourself. Like there is a sense that you're not just experiencing the same negative emotion over and over and over, whereas in high conflict, you're kind of stuck. And again, you can see that in the research analyzing high conflict, that it's the same frustration over and over. Often contempt gets involved, often disgust, but you're kind of stuck in that sort of feedback loop of negative emotion. Usually it's an us versus them kind of conflict. And in that state, we behave differently. So the normal rules of engagement just don't 
work in in high conflict. That that is the main. If you take nothing else, <laughs> I tell people: if you're not going to read the book, that's fine. Just know that there is this crucial distinction between high conflict and good conflict. Good conflict, we need more of, not less. But in high conflict, yeah, everything is a little bit tweaked. So if you feel like you're in a state of high conflict, um, whether it's personally or civically or whatever, and you're aware of all these dangerous emotions boiling around that you can't get out of, what do you do? So there's a few things that I think about a lot myself. First of all, try to identify the conflict entrepreneurs who may be in your midst. These are people or platforms that exploit conflict for their own needs, right? Sometimes it's really obvious it's for profit or power, but often it's for a sense of purpose, of camaraderie, tension. All those things are often driving conflict entrepreneurs. And we all can be conflict entrepreneurs, by the way, right? So everyone I followed for this book who shifted out of high conflict into good conflict started by distancing themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs in their midst. So it, it, for some people, it's literally, you know, not relying on your sister when you talk about your divorce struggles. <laughs> and for other people, it's changing who's on your Twitter feed or where you get your news, right? So being conscious of who are the people who really seem to delight in this conflict, right? They're the only ones who really, in the long term, are going to benefit from this conflict. It's interesting because you talk about um, conflict entrepreneurs on the one hand, but then you also talk about turning to the people who can actually take you out of a conflict, who can play a role in reducing the tensions that are simmering. So can you talk about that role as well? Yeah, so other people are, are you know, incredibly powerful in conflict, the people right outside of it. As Curtis Toller, the former gang leader I followed, he calls them the agitators, right? And, and often it's the people in high conflict might want to change it or to leave, but it's the agitators or the conflict entrepreneurs who kind of fan the flames. Um, and then there are other people, right, who help you out of high conflict, Often, not always, it's it's family or people you've known for a very long time. And in other places, it's elders, right? It's they 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 can act as like shields, is what they're called in the in the Philippines. People who help escort you out of high conflict into good. And they remind you of all that you have lost. They remind you of the costs, and they stay with you even when it's hard, right? Because leaving high conflict is excruciating. It's very, very lonely, and a lot of people who try end up going back into it. I'm going to ask you to tell us the story of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and the friendship that they had and then the conflict that, that they fell into. Um, and I want to ask you to talk about the role that humiliation played in their conflict and then also the role of um, the person who tried to smooth things over later on in their story. Yeah, so John Adams... And Thomas Jefferson were actually good friends. They disagreed on many, many things, right? But they did it with warmth. Eventually, they ended up running against each other, essentially, for president. And this was the beginning of political parties in the history of the United States, something they had both fought. They did not think that parties were a good idea because they had seen how it will factionalize people, right? And people will turn on each other. But this is what happened. And this experience, particularly for Jefferson, was 
humiliating. There was a sense of public embarrassment. Now, humiliation is one of the four key fire starters, right, that, that we talk about that tend to lead to high conflict. Evelyn Lindner, who studies conflict, she calls it the nuclear bomb of the emotions. Anytime people feel like they were up high and they've been brought low, especially publicly, it tends to ignite high conflict. And eventually, it will make things worse one way or another. So there's a ton of research on this that when humans feel rejected from the group, they tend to first try to re-ingratiate themselves. And if that doesn't work, they can become aggressive. And there's been, you know, thousands of experiments on this all over the world. And it's very consistent. And interestingly, it's not hard to make people feel rejected. You know, it's really easy to recreate in the laboratory. And the feeling is processed in our brain a lot like physical pain, even when it happens to someone in our group. So if it doesn't happen to us, it still feels like it happened to us, right? So this is the power of collective emotion in high conflict. So in the case of Jefferson and Adams, they had this um, kind of public feud about because they were on different sides. Anytime you divide humans into two opposing sides, you tend to get worse conflict for lots of reasons. But this is what happened. Both of them felt a little funny about the whole thing, and they wanted to renew their friendship. But these parties and the conflict entrepreneurs on both sides you know, didn't want that to happen. That was uncomfortable, right? So once you're on your side, you feel threatened and distrustful of the other side. So eventually they stopped speaking for 11 years, which was a real tragedy because the country was young and endangered in many ways, and their relationship was important for the rest of the country, right? But there was this falling out. It was a form of high conflict. And eventually, Benjamin Rush, uh, another mutual friend of theirs, brought them back together. So here you have an example of a shield of somebody who helps you out of high conflict. He told them both that the other was keen to talk to each other, right, which may or may not have been true, but that's what he told them. And uh, it, took, it took a couple years, but eventually they started writing each other again, they exchanged hundreds of letters, and they ended up dying on the same day, on July 4th, coincidentally. But they did return to good conflict, where they could disagree without severing the relationship. And you were talking about the, this dangerous emotion of humiliation often leading people experiencing it to become aggressive. Does it also lead them sometimes just to withdraw and that can create problems of its own for a conflict where two groups might just decide there, there's just no point anymore, we're done? Yeah. So avoidance of conflict is probably the most common response that most of us have, right? Particularly if we don't feel publicly humiliated. I mean, if you there's sort of d degrees of difference. So um, if you're just put off by the conflict or you feel excluded, yeah, a withdrawal avoidance is very common. And that's what we're seeing from most Americans, right, in the research, in our political conflict. Morin Common does some very good research on polarization around the world, and they call this the exhausted majority of Americans who really are just fatigued by the conflict, want something different, and are starting to tune out. Um, so the news avoidance rate in the United States is higher than any other country that's been studied this is avoidance, right? And, and understandable. Uh, I feel it in myself. I don't know about you, Susan, but I have definitely reduced my news diet over the past five years. And I feel conflicted about it internally because I'm supposed to be a journalist, you know, I'm supposed to, <laughs> but I find that it's so exhausting and so draining. And the problem is that when 
when we avoid the conflict, it doesn't go away. And in fact, we cede the ground or the social media uh, ground to people who get more and more extreme, who are really stuck in high conflict. And then it starts to feel like everyone is like that. So only 20% of Americans identify as very progressive or very conservative, but they're twice as likely to post uh, about politics on social media, right? So there's a disproportionate skew towards eventually towards extremists on social media. And you see that now also in the news, in politics, who's going to run for office, right? It's not going to be someone who's who's conflict avoidant or who can uh, who doesn't want to get into high conflict. It's going to be someone who wants to do that. Kind of a related but different question. When I was in law school, I um, I studied negotiation with Roger Fisher, who wrote the book Getting to Yes. And I remember that the question always came up, what do you do if you're negotiating with someone who's just honest to goodness, like a really difficult person? I don't think in those days we talked about the dark triad traits of narcissism or psychopathy or whatever, but you know, somebody along those lines. And what I, I remember that question always being asked and coming up in the book, Getting TS. And what I remember is that there was never a satisfying answer. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you have a satisfying answer. So it's a hard one, right? Is that there are people who want to be in the conflict. You know, when I talked to Curtis Toller about this, who is the former gang leader who now works on preventing gang violence in Chicago, he described it better than anyone, maybe because he was a, you know, master conflict entrepreneur for many years and now is incredibly open and self-aware about that in a way most people are not. Uh, But he said there were actually like three layers of motivation for him, and it was like peeling an onion. So the first layer is just that there's a historical rivalry with this other gang. So in his case, it was on the south side of Chicago. His gang was called the Black Peastone Nation, and the rivalry was with the gangster disciples. And among other things, Curtis's neighborhood basketball hero, a high school player there who everybody thought would be the next Michael Jordan, was uh, shot and killed on the street by, as it turned out, a gangster disciple. So when Curtis was very young, this kind of sealed the narrative in his head that gangster disciples were the enemy. And it gives you a great sense of purpose and also righteousness. And it makes sense of a world that didn't make sense, right? That level of random violence is not something that we can live with and feel okay. So it served a purpose for him and for others. And then below that, the next layer was very practical. You know, he wanted a reason to keep the gangster disciples off of his turf in the narcotics trade, right? So there's a profit reason for for conflict entrepreneurs. But most interestingly, he says, is underneath all that was his internal conflict. He said, most people who have a lot of external conflict have a lot of unresolved internal conflict. And that that seems right according to everything I've seen and to the research. I'm curious what you think. But what he said was, you know, he had a lot of trauma that he'd experienced, particularly violence against his mother, who uh, had been the victim of violence, serious of boyfriends, and was ultimately murdered by a man. So this unresolved trauma and conflict was still in Curtis, right? And he said that sometimes when he would pull the trigger, he would see his stepdad's face. And he's not proud of this, right? But you can see how people begin to displace the pain that they're suffering from. That's an extreme example, right? But eventually, Curtis was able and willing, and this is hard work, but he was able and willing to do the work and get the counseling, trauma counseling that he needed 
to begin to understand that internal conflict. And that's when he could shift out of high conflict, right? So there's this really tricky dynamic between internal and external conflict. And what he counsels young men in Chicago about today is, look, you can do these things and that's good, but you're probably not going to get out of high conflict or external conflict until you deal with your internal conflicts. And not everybody's ready to do that when we want them to be ready. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, if you're not ready or you're, or the person who you're dealing with isn't ready. Yeah. What then? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I asked Curtis this, I've asked everyone this. My instinct is to distance yourself get out of that relationship, right? I mean, if the person is really spreading pain around and there's a pattern of dysfunctional conflict, not just once, but a sort of consistent sense of scapegoating and grievance, right? Then you want to get out of that relationship. Now, you can't always, right? That's not always an option. In that case, what Curtis says is, and he encounters this all the time, as you might imagine, with young men who he's trying to help out of gang conflict in Chicago, he tries to understand those conflict entrepreneurs to figure out what's going on with them. And what Gary Friedman said, who's the conflict expert who ran for office, who's in the book, he really pushes back on me when I say you need to just get them out of your life. He says, look, if they're 90% conflict entrepreneur, speak to the 10%. Like try to find a way to connect with them as a human. That is very hard to do, right? But there are tricks and tips. And if you want to get more tactical for anyone dealing with this in their lives right now, I would recommend, uh, there's a series of books by someone named Bill Eddy, E-D-D-Y, who runs something called the High Conflict Institute that focuses specifically on dealing with high conflict personalities, particularly in the office, but in other contexts as well. And he has very sort of actionable how to distance yourself, how to set boundaries, how to talk to someone who fits this type. That's really useful. When we come back, Susan and Amanda discuss Dr. Seuss's sneetches and what they can teach us about the absurdity of choosing sides in a conflict. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to The Next Big Idea. Let's get back to the conversation Susan Cain is having with journalist Amanda Ripley. Okay, I want to switch topics and talk to you about The Sneetches, which is a a Dr. Seuss book that I read hundreds of times, I think, when I was a kid. I don't know if you're familiar with the book or for those listening, it was about these creatures and um, one set of these creatures had a star on their belly and then the other half of the creatures were identical, except they didn't have the star. And the ones without the star wanted to have the star. So they they found this elaborate contraption that enabled them to place a star on their bellies. And once the ones who had originally had the star saw that the other ones now had it, then they didn't want it. So they removed the star from their belly and they kept going back and forth, each one trying desperately to show that 
their side was the good side, whether with the star or without the star. Of course, the point of the book is just to see the absurdity of, of all of this. And that book really shaped the way I saw the world and see the world. I think about it all the time still, and especially now. And I thought about it again when I came across your work, because you talk especially about the problem of of us versus them thinking having to do with there being specifically like two groups and how how dangerous that situation can be. So I want to ask you to talk about that and maybe through the lens of the story of Gary Friedman, who's working with the new guard and the old guard and, and really found a way to break out of that two group model. Yeah. So probably the one of the fundamental human flaws in the modern world is this us versus them instinct, right, that we have as soon as we're divided into groups. And you can see it in all the research. You can maybe feel it in yourself if you're rooting for your team or uh, any time, even if it's an absurd difference. We know from the research when fans of a certain basketball team, when that team wins, the fans think they themselves are smarter and more capable afterwards, right? So we do experience this collective victory by proxy and also pain by proxy. Um, that Dr. Seuss book reminds me, you may have heard of this classic experiment that a teacher ran after Martin Luther King was assassinated in her classroom where she divided the kids into brown-eyed and blue-eyed and uh, said that the brown eyes were better, right? And they immediately turned on each other instantly. There was a superiority, a hierarchy. And then she flipped it the next day and the same thing happened, reverse. So it is really easy to manipulate humans this way. And this is, Americans are very vulnerable right now because it is not hard <laughs> to manipulate us as we keep seeing from politicians, from foreign interference, from disinformation, you know, the buttons are so easy to push because of our racial divides, because of our political divides and our segregation. Uh, this is a huge vulnerability. So to give an example of how to break through this, let's talk about Gary Friedman, as you mentioned. Gary Friedman helped invent the field, the modern field of conflict mediation in the U.S. legal system. He uh, has written three books on conflict. He taught negotiation at Harvard and Stanford and really just an incredibly accomplished thoughtful, wise person. When it comes to conflict, he's mediated thousands of conflicts, right? And then about five years ago, his neighbors asked him to run for office in his little town. So it's just a tiny town in Northern California. But even there, the tone of meetings had gotten kind of toxic and unpleasant and all the things that were, you know, bewitching national politics had affected local politics. And they thought, you know, who better than Gary Friedman to change this tone and make the conflict in their town healthier. So, of course, he said, well, that, that sounds like a good way to give back. He ran for office. Now, the way politics is currently designed in our system, right, is adversarial. It is us versus them, even at this tiny, you know, shoebox diorama level of this little town where he was trying to oust people who had been in this little town's you know, on the board for decades. And in his mind, he let himself fall into binary thinking. So he thought him, of himself and his allies as the new guard and the other side as the old guard, right? 
And it was motivating, right? It felt good to, to have such clarity. And that's how we fall into this in politics often, is it's galvanizing to know that you're on the good side and there's a side that you need to beat. And they did succeed in ousting them. And of course, there were hard feelings, right, that weren't dealt with over that. And so as soon as he fell into that binary thinking, he was in trouble, is what he said later. So even before he won the election, there was this kind of inflated sense of superiority. And that is something that he then had to go back after losing two years of his life and peace of mind to this, you know, what looks like a pretty petty conflict from an outsider's point of view. He had to go back and scramble up those categories, right, in order to get out of high conflict into good. He had to start to re-individualize and rehumanize and recategorize his opponents so that he didn't as easily fall into that trap. And just to give you a quick example, he would sometimes vote with one of his opponents if he agreed with them, which he had never done before. <laughs> and he would sometimes vote against them. This also scrambles the categories for them, take people by surprise, which is a good way to interrupt high conflict. And he would talk to them about things that they both really cared about, like gardening or their dogs. It sounds stupid and superficial. And the key is he had to really mean it, right? He had to genuinely be curious about their dogs or their sick mother-in-law or whatever it is and kind of build up some emotional credit in the, in the bank so that he could get to a place where it was less likely they would collapse into high conflict. It actually doesn't sound stupid at all. And, you know, I, I found that the thread through all the different techniques you talk about and all the different stories that you told, and some of these stories are just amazing, is really the, the thread of humanization, like that it's really all about stopping seeing people through the lens of positions and categories and just try to get to the human as much as you can. And now I'm thinking simultaneously of like three different aspects of that that I want to ask you about. But I, I, I guess one of the stories that was really, really along these lines of, um, of humanizing the other and really touching was the one about the group of Trump voting, you probably knew I was going to say this, um, mm -hmm. of Trump voting correctional officers in Michigan deciding to really get to know a group of liberal Jews from a synagogue on the Upper West Side of New York and vice versa. But each of these two groups really deciding they wanted to get to know the other to the point of actually going and sleeping over at each other's houses and hanging out um, for a few days. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was a, a really a strange, almost happenstance, but transformative experience for everyone involved, including myself, because I got to, you know, ride along and go on this adventure with them. So there is a very large influential synagogue in New York City on the Upper West Side of Manhattan called B'nai Jeshurun. And this is a place that had struggled with a lot of internal conflict for years before Trump was elected. And they had gotten to a place where they had developed through really hard work some good rituals around cultivating good conflict, around leaning into their differences on Israel, on interfaith marriage, on these really controversial topics. And this was not overnight. Like, it was a difficult process. Uh, but to their credit, they got to a point where they actually were a little bit curious about people they profoundly disagreed with. And that is the key, right? So then Trump gets elected. 
and they don't know anyone who voted for Trump. Uh, and so they want to lean into conflict again, sort of, right? <laughs> because they found it can be really transcendent and, and healthy, but they're not sure how to do it. So along comes this uh, union organizer named Simon Greer, who happened to have been working with conservatives in Michigan um, with the union that represented the corrections officers in the prison system. And he also was from New York City. He knew this synagogue and he was at a birthday party at the synagogue. And he said to one of the rabbis, hey, you know what would be really cool is if we brought a group of synagogue members to rural Michigan to meet these really cool conservative corrections officers that I've been working with, you know, most of whom have never met a Jewish person, right? And never been in New York City. And, and so there's huge divides between these two groups. And the rabbi laughed because it sounded sort of like a joke and not a, not a great one, you know. And then he brought it up again. And eventually they sort of couldn't deny that this, if they were going to walk the walk around conflict and challenge themselves, this was a good opportunity. Now, then he had to go to the corrections officers and convince them. And they said, look, we're going to do a home exchange cultural program with uh, Upper West Side liberals um, from this synagogue. And, you know, as you might imagine, many of them were confused and a little freaked out by this. But eventually, to their credit, they agreed, you know, partly because it meant that they would then get to go to New York City and do a home exchange the other way around. And they opened up their homes to these strangers, had them there for three days and three nights. They had hard conversations about immigration, about Trump, about race, about gay rights. Uh, they went to a firing range. They had dinner together. They really started to enjoy each other's company. But it started out very different. And I, I'm always a little reluctant to tell this story because I think it sounds kind of kumbaya and, oh, isn't that nice for them, you know? <laughs> but in fact, it was a really hard thing for both both groups. Like they were both having trouble sleeping before they left. They were frightened of each other is what it came down to. And there's something really poignant about listening to both of them before this, because they had just been led to believe that the other side was truly immoral and dangerous, you know, and you really do have to sort of pause and think, how did this happen? You know, how did we get to be so frightened of people that we don't know and have never met? Um, they were much more frightened than if people had been coming from another country, for example. But here are people from their same time zone, right, coming to stay in their homes. And it was, it was profoundly unsettling until it wasn't. And then it was exciting and frustrating and distressing and, and fun. I mean, it was actually fun. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but that's what it was. No, it sounded like it was fun. And you had a really interesting riff, actually, in the way you were describing it. You, you were saying... Imagine that somebody told you that two groups who live in different cities in another country um, were this afraid of each other, how strange we would find it. And we don't notice it as much when it's in, in our own country, but it is really incredibly odd. Yeah. I mean, it makes you start to, at least it made me start to ask myself, what percentage of the stories I tell myself are true about other people, you know, and what percentage are just mythology? I mean, there is a percentage. And it's like, it's hard to know what percentage. Coming up after the break, Amanda shares the amazing twist that story took following the 2018 mass shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, 
the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back to the show. Susan and Amanda have been discussing the surprising fellowship that formed between conservative Christian Michiganders and liberal Jewish New Yorkers. That story had an interesting twist later on um, after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah, so not long after, so the, so the New Yorkers went to Michigan and the Michigan conservatives came to New York City. So they really developed these strong friendships, even as they continued to profoundly disagree. They found that there were some things they agreed on and there were other things they really disagreed on and would never agree on, but they were able to sit with that disagreement. And a couple weeks later, there was that terrible sort of mass shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And because these um, mostly men, but not entirely men from rural Michigan had just been in a synagogue going to services in New York City with these people who were now their friends, it resonated with them in a way that other other things had not, right? Other shootings and other tragedies. Uh, So they asked to do a call, which they all did. And there was this very somber um, and a real sense of connection and sadness that this had happened. And then they ended up writing a letter, which three of the Michigan men brought in person to the synagogue and read aloud at Friday services. And it was, it's actually on YouTube. um, And it's a really, it's a, it's a very powerful statement of, of solidarity and of, compassion and of worry for the country. You know, that was the overriding sentiment was like, we have got to find ways to coexist without violence. We are writing today as conservative, patriotic Americans. We are shocked, angered, saddened to learn that a man filled with hate for Jews entered the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and committed a horrific act of terror on Jewish Americans peacefully at worship. We can no longer turn a blind eye to the people and places where this kind of hatred is fueled. We also recognize this despicable crime occurred amidst an increasing polarized political climate. We cannot stand by as our country spirals downward in a cycle of hate and violence. This cannot be a partisan issue as it is more fundamental than politics. This is a moral crossroads for our country and enough is enough. We need to find common ground, not isolate ourselves into corners of hostility. We must set an example we want others to follow. Our prayer remains with you and the rest of the Jewish community. 
And I have to say the way that you were able with your writerly mastery to describe that story, I had such an uncanny reaction, which was you, you were describing how after they read their statement, the people in the synagogue like all stood up and clapped for them. And, and that went on and on. And as I was reading that, I was having goosebumps that were going, that were also lasting kind of along with the applause that I was reading about. It was really a remarkable moment. So I want to let people know that this book is also full of tips that we didn't necessarily get to talk about. But for example, you all probably think that you're really good at active listening because you've been hearing about active listening all your lives. And you probably think you're doing it when you nod and you listen along um, and really pay attention. But Amanda has so much to teach about how to actually do that, the things that I had never heard before. I think I'll just end by asking you, Amanda, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would most want listeners to hear today? Yeah, I mean, I think the the reason I wrote this book ultimately was to find some hope because one of the traps of high conflict is that it feels hopeless. It feels like there's no way out, right? There's this narrowing of options and that's how you stay stuck, right? So the idea was to find people who have really left high conflict and see, was this even possible? Um, and I think the thing that I maybe didn't fully realize until after the book was written was the ways in which that changed not only how effective the people were at their cause, right? Like they continued everyone in it. There's an environmental activist, there's a politician, there's a former gang leader, there's a uh, ex-guerrilla fighter from Colombia. Everyone in it continues to this day to fight for the exact same cause that brought them into the conflict. You know, usually it's some form of justice or uh, some form of um, belonging and dignity and security, right? They still are fighting those fights. None of them changed their mind or gave up or defected. What they did in shifting to good conflict was get much more effective in that fight. Like you're just much more likely to succeed. There's research by Erica Chenoweth that nonviolent social resistance movements are twice as likely as, as violent movements, right? So nonviolent resistance movements are an example of good conflict. Uh, but the piece of it that I think really has kind of lingered for me is the way it transformed their own internal conflict, coming back to that theme, their way that they live with the conflict in their own mind. So even when you're dealing with an opponent or a person who does not want good conflict, who is not fighting fair, right, or where there's a huge power differential, even when you're going to be in that kind of situation, it's up to you what kind of conflict you want to live with in your own head, right? Do you want to lose sleep to this as you fight it? Do you want to ultimately end up suffering and have the people around you suffer? And that's what happens in, in high conflict. Everyone I followed ended up harming the people that they set out to protect until they shifted into good conflict. So there's something about this internal fight versus the external fight that is actually kind of transcendent, you know? So even though I can't control other people, and I, God, I wish I could, right? <laughs> but I can't. Uh, I can control how I'm going to live with this conflict while still fighting for what's right. Fantastic. Okay. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing with us today, but even more for writing this book. 
incredibly important and I really cannot recommend it enough. Thank you so much, Susan. It's, it's, I'm so delighted to be picked. I'm already really enjoying the conversations uh, on the private Facebook page and other places with, with the members of the club. And, you know, I'm just grateful to share these stories. Well, thanks again. Would you like to hear what Amanda thinks are the five biggest ideas from High Conflict? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out her book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you love what we're doing or even like what we're doing, leave us a review. We read everyone seriously. Like this one from Reality Strikes Back who wrote, I listen to a lot of podcasts and this is definitely one of my favorites because it actually teaches me mind tricks. And when you know what you don't know, this stuff is awesome. Well, Reality Strikes Back, we think you are awesome. Thanks for being a fan. Special thanks to Amanda Ripley and Susan Kane. Kayla Bissinger wrote and produced this episode. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound designed by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.